the Asco Leadership Podcast with Jeff Barton. I'm Amanda Spielman. I'm the Ofsted Chief Inspector. And this whole business of relationships and sex education has been in the news. And there's talk of there being a review around it. And you've made some comments um, this morning. Do you mind just, just telling us what your perspective is? Really happy to do that. Like most people, I think that good RSE is important and valuable and something that we very much want to have in schools. And the last thing that most people want is to return to the, the sort of battles of the past that have made it possible for us to do what we do today. Um, but it's also important to recognise that it's an area with a huge range of parental views and sensitivities. And it's bound to be when it bring, draws in issues around sex, sexuality, gender, um, as well as often faith issues. So it is really important that RSE remains grounded in facts and evidence, just like other aspects of education. And my worry is that controversy could make schools more risk-averse and jeopardise good RSE, um, and it does need protecting. So my view is that good guidelines could help to reduce um, the, 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 the anxiety and the threats, reassure parents and let schools get on with teaching. And you've been with us at conference this morning. How, how's it been? Have you enjoyed it? It's a terrific <laughs> event. I always enjoy being here. Thanks for being here. I'm Joe Saxton, Chief Regulator of Ofqual. And we just had a session, Joe, where we talked a little bit about uh, last year's exam season, particularly the VTQs, a bit about the implications for this year, and then we, at the end, touched on the future. Let's just do the first two of those, shall we? What, what were you saying as Chief Regulator about last year, lessons to be learnt for this year? The, the big achievement of last year was uh, a welcome step back to normality, but we're probably this year is going to be more like a new normal, um, students have told us again and again how much they valued having formal exams and assessments. But the thing that leaders and parents need to be aware of is that results will be lower this year as part of that, that step back to normal. And it doesn't mean they've done something wrong. It doesn't mean something's gone wrong in the school or college or that uh, something's gone wrong with marking. And, and so that expectation management is, is really important. And, and I'm going to do everything I can as chief regulator to help communicate that from through parents, chairs of governors and, and, and DfE to make sure its accountability messages um, uh, really clearly set out that, that context. In terms of ETQs, we already have rules that results should be delivered on time. What last year showed us is that the rules aren't enough and we need changes in the processes. So again, we're working with um, ASCO members and many others to make sure that the processes uh, enable students to get results when they need them but that will need some support from from you guys out there in schools and colleges um, so that your exams administration staff have the time during term time to work with academic staff to be sure who needs a result who's expecting a result what modules and elements do they need and does the exam board know that and we'll be announcing next week um, three really clear dates that should help make all of that it's the beginning of making all of that easier. And I guess finally, the implication for this year is, is about expectation management, isn't it? As standards overall return towards 2019, return to 2019 levels. Um, that means centres themselves need to be aware of that. Uh, parents will need to be aware of it. Governors will need to be aware of it. What's, what's the thinking around that? Well, part of the point of going back to normal is so that leaders and those that work directly with students have a bank of materials that they know there's the there's the biggest availability of resource for 2019 and pre-pandemic years and and that was my main um interest i want i want teachers and adults 
who work with students to be able to give them the best advice they can about what they need to know and do next. We also heard loud and clear from universities, from employers, that if we could reinstate pre-pandemic um, standards, they would feel more confident in offer making to students and in employment choices. And so it, although it feels counterintuitive, I believe it's firmly in the interest of students to be reinstating pre-pandemic standards. Dr. Joe Saxton, thank you. Thank you, Jeff. My name is Shappi or Sharparak Korsandi, and I'm a stand-up comic and author. And you've just been talking to our conference of, uh, what, 1,200 school and college leaders here who absolutely loved that. And you made a number of connections between your own education but also of teachers and the role they have, which is a bit like stand-up comedy. Can you just give us a flavour of what you were saying then? Well, I, I don't think it's a coincidence that many, many comics on the comedy in the comedy industry are ex-teachers. <laughs> I think uh, teachers and comics are the same animal because we are the ones who have to look like we are in charge and in control no matter what's going on for us beneath the surface. We have to make connections with people from all walks of life who may on paper have nothing in common with us and yet we are travelling together. And I think uh, that that's what comedians and teachers do. And you also made um, extraordinary points about perceptions of females, perceptions of males, not just, in fact, in terms of you know, being a stand-up comic, but that kind of learned behaviour, uh, that will have resonated. A conference which is about empowering leadership, whether this is about women in leadership in particular, that will have resonated. Just for those people who didn't hear it, just give us a quick reminder of what, what it was you were saying. So, so, for example, how a, a, a you said something about how boys are almost oh, trained rejection. rejection. That's it. Yes, uh, I think that to to be a leader, you have to be okay with rejection. You have to learn to love the word no, um, whether it's an actual no, you can't get this job or you can't get this position, or a no, as in you haven't connected with the people you're working with, because you can't pull it out of a hat you have to learn and the only way you learn is by falling and I believe that men and boys are allowed to uh, they're expected to deal with rejection better than women are from a very young age um, for example it's socially acceptable for me to cry if I'm in a flap about something. It's not socially acceptable for you to cry mm. if you're in a flap about something. And if you're a leader, if you're a comedian, or if you're standing on a stage and you're saying, I'm gonna you know, take you somewhere, you can't hide. And you have to accept that sometimes people aren't gonna accept you and you have to figure out ways to deal with that rejection. I think that's a conditioning that uh, women have to undo sometimes a lot of the time and just one one last reflection on that and, that, and then i'll leave you a women have to do that but if you're a stand-up comedian the feedback is so instantaneous isn't it and that must double the sense of rejection yeah i mean the feedback with stand-up comic if people don't like you if they reject you is immediate and it is intense and it is there is a reason why they call it dying it feels like you are hollowed out it feels like you are dust and it's horrible. And to get back onto a stage after that experience, knowing that it's going to happen again, always does, it's a hazard of the trade, 
takes armour. So it's armour that is really important because you can be a brittle person. Mm. You could be a vulnerable person, you can be a quiet person, but you can have armour. I want to put all this in the next talk. Yeah, you should write a book about this. Yeah. That has been brilliant. Thanks so much. I'm Jay Blades. Jay, how do you describe yourself? You know, what's your, what is your job, would you say? <laughs> that's a good, that's a good <laughs> thing. Um, I, des I describe myself as a glorified community worker that they've put on TV. So my whole role is, in my eyes, is to influence people I'm never going to meet and to um, try to make the world a better, better place. Good, well, that's a noble, yeah. noble aim. And so you're about to go and talk to 1,200 school and college leaders. What kind of things do you think you might be about to say? Um, I normally just wing it, so I don't know what I'm about to say. Um, I'm waiting for the questions and then I'll just, yeah, I'll wing it. So um, I would say record it because it'll probably be special. <laughs> and just from my point of view, I think there are two yeah. things, that have, having just seen you on the repair shop and seen the programme you put together about your literacy yes. issues, there are two things. One is in an education culture which too often seems like it only thinks that the very academic things are important. What you do, yes. and what the repair shop does, yeah. is to show us the deep humanity of making things. Yeah. And the attention to detail. Well, it, it, for me, it's more about making things because there's a number of people who are not necessarily academic. So I went through schooling system, primary and secondary, um, not being diagnosed as dyslexia. It was only when I went to university at a ripe old age of 30 that I got diagnosed. And then... Still not brilliant at reading and writing, but I'm brilliant at making. Um, so there's another avenue for people like myself. And you always knew you were brilliant at making? Yeah. When, you, when you're poor, you've got to make do with what you've got. Um, you can't afford to buy stuff, so you just go out there. Oh, someone's ringing you. Yeah, I know. You're that a popular guy. Oh, yeah. That, <laughs> that, that combination of making things, but also being able to talk about yes. why literacy matters, mm. that, for me, is, is fantastic. So we're so mm. grateful for you coming today. Oh, thank, thank you. Thank you. No, thank you for having me. Um, you haven't heard me talk yet. Remember, I'm winging it, so <laughs> wait to see if you say the same yes, thing yes, after. Yes, well, I can, I can always erase this, but thank you. Thanks yeah, so edit that. Thank you. <laughs> I'm Baroness Sue Campbell. I'm the Director of Women's Football at the FA. And Sue, so we're here just before day two of our ASCO conference. You're going to be on stage in a few minutes. What kind of things are you going to talk about? Well, I'm going to talk about the success of the summer and uh, particularly Serena and her leadership style and what m has made her so successful. And then I was going to talk about legacy and talk about not just the legacy you leave in the job you do, but the legacy you leave from the moral purpose that kind of burns inside you. And I guess one of the bits of legacy we've all been thinking about is going back to the Olympics, the London Olympics, people talking about whether we squandered the opportunities and stuff. I mean, you were so much a part of that Olympic story. What's your reflection on that? Um, I honestly think we could have done a lot better than we did. And I think I learned a lot from that. So. Once we knew we'd won the Euros, we spent two years preparing the legacy before the event. In other words, making sure the opportunities were there. Because when you inspire young people or older people to want to get involved, they've got to have somewhere to go. And if you haven't done that groundwork, you haven't done that preparation, then that leads to frustration because they go and they can't get in or mm. they go and they're not welcomed. So we did a lot of work and then we, the players themselves came out of the Euros absolutely determined to leave a long-term legacy. And last Wednesday, you know, the Secretary of State announced the impact they've had in terms of investment in school sport and equal access for girls. And that's very much down to their passion and commitment to leave something beyond just winning a trophy. Have a great speech. Thanks for being here. My pleasure. Uh, Bridget Phillips and Shadow Secretary of State for Education. <laughs> and you've just been talking at our conference. You've uh, said something, I think, from the reaction, 
feels pretty momentous about the future of inspection. Um, a couple of things. One is around the grading and how that might look, and one is around safeguarding. Can you just say what you've been saying? Yeah, I started the conversation last year at your conference around the need for a form of Ofsted, and it's been really important to work with you and with others in thinking about what you know, the detail of reform will look like. So we want to make sure we are driving up standards in all of our schools. I don't believe the current system of accountability that we've got is making that happen in the way that it should. So I do think we need an annual review of safeguarding in our schools um, alongside a, an inspection that can focus on the quality of the education that's provided. I think parents want more information about what's working in their schools, where there is need for greater improvement, and we need to make the system less high stakes because we're facing such big challenges around recruitment and retention. I guess the boldness of what you're talking about in terms of Ofsted and grading, where you're talking about not having overarching grades, is that you would be if elected, the first Secretary of State who can't say, on my watch, we have got X number of schools which are outstanding and good, which has always been a kind of mantra of theirs. It's the way you show the system is improving. Does that feel like a bold move to you? I mean, it's hugely supported by us. It's part of what our policy is. Um, do you think parents will support the idea that suddenly they haven't got those key indicators? We've thought about this very carefully in setting out the policy, and I do want to consult further um, with teachers, school leaders and parents about what that will look like. But what I will often hear from parents is that they don't feel the system that we've got right now gives them the full and accurate impression as to what is really happening within our schools. I don't think it's right that there is such a big gap where it comes to issues around safeguarding being picked up. I want to make sure that they're identified more quickly and action is taken. But I do believe we need a more balanced approach in understanding what our schools are doing and where they need to improve. But for those schools that face the greatest challenge, um, where progress hasn't been made, I don't think the system we've got right now is driving the kinds of outcomes that we want for children in the most disadvantaged communities, and that has to, um, you know, really does have to change. Bridget Phillipson, thank you very much. I'm Julie McCulloch, Director of Policy at Askell. And it's uh, Saturday. Uh, we've heard Bridget Phillipson, the Shadow Secretary of State for Education, with what has felt to us like a fairly momentous set of announcements really. Do you want to just talk us through them? Yeah, absolutely. So Bridget was really building on a theme that she started this time last year at our conference where she talked about um, that Labour was committed to continuing with an independent inspectorate um, but that she wanted to, to make some changes. It was quite broad brush last year I would say. This year she really fleshed it out and I think what what it felt to me like she got was the, the, the pressures of accountability in the system and particularly the relationship between that and the current teacher recruitment and retention crisis. So she proposed three quite specific commitments that Labour will... That, that they want to do, but they'll consult on the detail of, which sounds very sensible news, to me. Yeah. Absolutely, hard to argue with that. So so the, the biggie really is about looking at how we move away from a, a system based on grades to one based on something like a report card. So something that would look at what is it that's good about a school or college? What is it that might be better? And that kind of more nuanced picture rather than the, the single word or phrase that I think is so reductive at the moment. So we were really pleased to see that. That's a key recommendation that Askell's made in a a recent report on the future of inspection so we've worked closely with the Labour team on their thinking around this and we were really pleased to see that recognised. Um, Bridget also talked about looking at what is the the expertise and experience of inspectors when they go into a school so the 
quite straightforward and quite sensible suggestion, I think, <laughs> that uh, if you have a primary school inspection, perhaps the lead inspector should have a primary background. If you have a secondary school inspection, a secondary background, etc. So again, kind of quite hard to argue with that one, I think. And then the third uh, proposal that they have made around inspection, again, something that ASCAL has, has argued strongly for, is if you're looking at something so crucial and fundamental like safeguarding, it seems slightly bizarre at the moment that that's rolled into an inspection that might only happen every four years. The suggestion here, again, based on some thinking that we've done, uh, is how about looking instead at an annual audit of safeguarding um, that would, would take that out of the inspection process, give that sort of reassurance that parents need and mean that inspection could be much more focused on the quality of education. Julie McCulloch, thank you very much. I'm Phoebe Hansen. I'm a activist at the intersection of um, climate and education. Great. And? I'm Yumna Hussain. Um, I'm a youth advocate campaigning to ensure that young people's voices are represented within governance and policy making. Um, and I'm, I work with Buyback 2030 and a, a, load, a load of different other organisations and former youth MP for Birmingham. And you've just been sitting on a stage in front of around a thousand school and college leaders. Uh, so well done on doing that. <laughs> what, what were you saying? We were talking a lot about the need to trust young people when we talk about bringing youth voice into schools and empowering young people within their educational institutions. Um, Yumna was talking a lot about that, like school as a microcosm for the rest of society, showing young people that they have the power to be able to create change, whether that's outside in their local area, in green spaces, helping to regenerate their local communities, or whether that's in their school, contributing to the governance of the body that they exist in on a daily basis. That can really help them to see that the rest of society is something that they can also contribute to the governance of too. They can participate in actively throughout the rest of their life. And Yumi, you mentioned Bike Back 2030. For those people who don't know about that, just explain it. So Bike Back 2030 is a youth-led organisation working to half childhood obesity rates by 2030. And we do this um, through supporting students to become leaders within their own schools. Um, also working with a lot of um, food companies to see how young people's views can be represented um, within that. But also supporting young people to just speak about their own lived experience of food poverty and food insecurity. And I think Back Back 2030 has been incredible um, in terms of elevating and empowering a load of young people um, in having agency and having um, ownership of their own stories around um, food poverty. And we work also on certain issues such as free school meals um, and junk food marketing and a different, you know, loads of different issues surrounding the food space. And thank you both for an inspiring session. Thank you no so worries. much. Thank, thank you. you so much. M Martin Tierney from a company called Seating Matters in Northern Ireland. And I think people hearing that might be surprised that someone with your name who works for that company is here on stage. So what have you just been saying? <laughs> well, I had nothing to teach any teachers about anything <laughs> to do with teaching. Um, really, I wanted to share a deeply personal story of how a big, compelling purpose is something that you can inspire a team to get behind in order to leave a mark in the world. Uh, yes, and in essence, your deep, compelling purpose was you saved a family. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah I, I suppose I did. Um, yeah, it's a family that I, I got to know through a, a friend and they were fleeing persecution in one end of the world and I helped them safely get to Canada over a period of five years or so. And there's so many lessons in it. You know, the, the hero of the story is the, the, the family that, that I saved. I was just a, a, a conduit for all the goodness that was generated as a result of their, their plight. 
Um, but it's, it's an incredible story of the resilience of human beings and the kindness and generosity of complete strangers to help someone in need. And I think it's relevant for the ASCO membership because your head teachers are saving people's lives every day. Maybe not in big public ways, but the little gestures, the little kindnesses, the little accommodations that they make for people is having an extraordinary impact on the lives of that person. Um, and I, I don't think that we appreciate or value that enough. And just finally, Martin, I mean, what strikes me about what you did at a time when people are talking about asylum seekers and refugees, and often that's being caricatured and characterised in a particularly negative way, you just remind us of the deep humanity of this. And secondly, you remind me of something that Steve Jobs from Apple said, which is that what we should try to do is to leave a dent on the universe. Mm -hmm. There's a sense that what you were both through your own story doing, but also looking out to a thousand leaders there, their job is to leave a dent on the universe. Yeah. Well, no one packs their bags, leaves their home in the middle of the night to flee across the world, you know, trying to navigate criminal gangs and mountains and rivers and oceans to sit on welfare. These people are just trying to live their lives mm. and provide summer dry for their children to sleep at night, something for them to eat through the day, and maybe a school that will care for them um, and give them the hope of a better future that they didn't have. So I think it's we need to bring humanity into this, and it's, it's deeply unfair the way the majority of the world treats the most vulnerable in society. Mm. Martin Tierney, thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, Brent Fry. I was a school administrator for uh, 20 years, and then I uh, left uh, education, went to Apple to lead education leadership at Apple, and I was there for 21 years. And you're here at the Askell conference, uh, you've just come off stage. What essentially were you talking about there? Well, uh, really focusing on uh, the importance of intention in driving innovation in schools, um, and how innovation occurs, which means that there, there's a lot of failure um, as part of the process of innovation. And so, uh, but, but ultimately, and more deeply, uh, how leaders communicate with their, uh, their students, their teachers, their communities about what it is they do. What's their North Star? What's their, um, what's their intention uh, around the work that they do? What are their values? And... Um, and also something we refer to as the implicit promise. What are the implicit promises that are maybe not talked about a lot but become an important part of how you operate your organization? And just let's take that idea of a North Star because you, well, first of all, ex just explain what you understand by that. And then you made an interesting contrast between when you were an administrator and at Apple, what you could point to. I want you to tell the story rather than me. So this, this notion of the North Star and the way you're expressing yeah, I mean, the mission. I think, you know, the, by, by North Star at Apple, the North Star is, you know, we make amazing products that enrich people's lives. A very simple statement uh, that is understood by all, that feels good, something that you want to be a part of. Um, I think the contrast that I had uh, in my school administrative days is that we worked really hard at building mission statements and strategic plans that perhaps were not understood by the general public. They may have been understood by us, um, by us educators, but not by parents, not by community. Um, and, and if you were to ask many teachers within the, the, the school building, they, they wouldn't be able to tell you what the mission statement even said. 
And so the contrast um, that I learned along the way is that by having a simple statement that is guiding uh, what it is you do, uh, that can be very, very powerful in driving the culture of your school or your organization. And just one last thing, Brent, and that is, I think what will have surprised people who might have thought with your background at Apple that what we were talking about was technology, etc. This really wasn't about technology, it was about culture. And one of the things you asked people to do in the audience, because of the Apple emphasis on feeling and emotion, mm-hmm. on surprise and delight, you asked people in the audience to put their hand up. Just tell us what you asked them to do and tell us why you did that. So, uh, yeah, one of the things that I shared was that the there is intentionality around uh, the box and that when you uh, have an iPhone box or an iPad box, when you lift the lid, um, you feel a vacuum. And that vacuum is uh, intended to create surprise and delight for the product. Um, if you leave the box at the, at, at the top and let it drop, it takes about eight seconds for it to drop down. This is all by design and engineered specifically to create surprise and delight. So surprise and delight are uh, uh, an aspect of the implicit promise. It's the thing that, um, that Apple wants to do in its, in its products. And it's uh, probably not something most people would think about, but it's the reason that many people keep Apple boxes. They, they keep them because the box itself is a product. Um, and we should think about details in schools in the same way. So uh, if we were to think about the details of how the school operates, um, uh, how students enter the building, how they leave the building, all of these small details, um, uh, you could draw a comparison to the box and say <laughs> there, there are aspects of, uh, by design, how we want people to feel um, and, and what our promise to them will be when they're a part of our organization or our school um, or the, the community that they're in. It's a great talk. Thank you, Brent. Thank you. My name is Benjamin Zephaniah. And we're so pleased to have you at the conference today. Do you want to give a flavour of what you might be doing when you head out onto the stage? Well, I have this problem in that I never really rehearse what I'm going to say. <laughs> um, I don't really think about it too much. I've been told to talk about my education and the arts and um, you know I guess I'm going to talk about I always love talking about my first days in school because it was very traumatic um, and very Tra- traumatic for what reason well the racism I experienced um, went to an all-white school me and my twin sister and we had um, real difficulties there um, and um, but to cut a very long story short, um, I guess I'll be ending saying something about art, poetry, literature and how that saved me. And that, I think you will find, will resonate incredibly because one of the things that's happened this morning is we've had Bridget Phillips and the Shadow Secretary of State for Education mm-hmm. talking about Labour's policy if they get into power. And in a private conversation, we were talking about the importance of the arts of sport, of the things that are being squeezed out of school at the moment. I was proud to be head of a sports college, but the arts were central to it. And I think you reminding us why that matters so much is, is, is just absolutely essential. I can remember many years ago, um, during the reign of Margaret Thatcher, when they were talking about concentrating on the free arts and getting rid of the arts and all that kind of stuff. I remember doing a talk in in uh, Dublin, in a pub called the Parnell Mooney, very famous pub in Dublin. And um, 
I did a gig and then afterwards I was doing a talk and I was saying how important it was to um, to use the arts in school to get kids to kind of understand about the world in a different way but also how to express themselves and um, anyway that was it many years later Nelson Mandela came out of prison I was invited back to I was invited to South Africa and I was doing a talk in Durban one day and a guy came up to me and he said um, I remember your talk in Dublin and um, I've taken that with me to the work that I do now so I said what do you do now and he said well I'm the minister of education <laughs> you know he was in exile in Dublin and um Every time I tell that story, people know who it is, uh, but I can't remember his name. Um, but you see, he realised um, the truth of what I was saying. I'm not always right, but art is so important for people who, who find it difficult to express themselves, um, to look at how other people express themselves and then understand that they can do that too. Is a is a really empowering thing. Just one final final question. So you reference your own education, which had this nastiness at the heart of it, the racism. Do I infer that something happened in your education through the arts, which was a stepping stone to your success, or did that happen beyond education? Actually, it happened beyond education. Um, uh, it's so interesting now that um, I spend a lot of time going into schools and I'm passionate about education, uh, art in, in, in schools. Um, but I didn't get any, really. Didn't you? No, no. Um, and so that love of, of expressing yourself and being able to write and, and then perform, where did that come from? It came from my mother, really, and uh, um, the tradition that she brought from Jamaica of storytelling and... You know, um, if you want to remember something, make up a poem about it and um, literally sitting around a fire, reading poems to each other and singing songs and things like that. Um, so that's where it really came from. I was really lucky growing up in Birmingham. I think um, uh, there was a, a group of people, sometimes people call them gypsies, travellers, you know, they're, they're two different people. But I used to love being with them cause, because they... Um, they did that. They sat around a campfire and read poems to each other, and I just loved it. it, it yeah. I felt it was like almost like cowboy style, yeah, you know. Absolutely. Um, so, um, I think that's why I'm so passionate about it in schools now because I know what it did for me, what the arts did for me, and um, you know, and I just, I, I, I just love to see when young people, or anybody for that matter who find it very difficult to express themselves in normal everyday speak find something artistic and then are able to kind of inspire others you know it's a great thing well absolutely we're a trade union and we have a uh, a motto which is we speak on behalf of members we act on behalf of children yeah. and that notion that every child from every background should have an entitlement yeah. to the kind of things which otherwise it's about potluck, whether you happen to have parents who can afford to give you things or you happen to go to a school. So you, your message, I think, uh, which is essentially about how the arts uh, opens eyes into different worlds, mm. uh, will be really well received. Thank you, Benjamin Zephanar. Thank you so much. Thank you. Peace. The Askell Leadership Podcast with Jeff Barton. 